grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. We're going to be in the same verses that we were in last week. If you weren't here last week, it's Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the black Bible in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that black Bible and keep it. Malachi, if you have trouble finding it, is just the first, or the last book, excuse me, of the Old Testament. So you can go to Matthew and then flip back a couple of pages, and then you'll find Malachi. I've still got a bit of a lingering cough, so forgive me if I have to stop and go full Marco Rubio on this glass of water several times throughout the service, the sermon. Which is worse? That's kind of the way we like to boil things down when we're having a conversation about things. Which is worse? It's the question that we so often end up asking. One of the main talking points among Christians during this last election election cycle was the question of what's worse, racism or abortion? As if both of these things are not two terrible assaults on the image of God. One of the main talking points of the modern evangelical movement is the LGBT movement. And the charge is often made of evangelicals that they treat homosexuality as if it's more of a grievous sin than fornication or adultery. As if all three of these sins don't fall far short of God's good design for our sexual relationships. What's worse, marrying unbelievers or divorce? Well, the text that we looked at last week and are continuing in today shows us that Marrying unbelievers and divorce are actually two sins that are actually symptomatic of a deeper sin. Two expressions of the same sinful heart reality, which is faithlessness. You'll remember that last week we said that verses 10 through 16 deal with two sin issues in in the life of the Israelites in the days of Malachi. The leaders of the people were leading them poorly, and you saw that begin to reflect in their lives, in their in their family lives. Uh, Some of the men were marrying unbelieving women and bringing pagan worship into the life of God's people. And apparently some men were also just kind of using women up and then throwing them away. They were marrying women young and then getting rid of them and divorcing them unlawfully and marrying other women. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's this second thing which we see at the beginning of verse 13. Let's read verses 10 through 16 of chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Well, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, well, why does He not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
And what was the one God seeking? Well, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Got four points for you this morning. What is marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? What is divorce? And what is God's response to divorce? And then we have some application. What is marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? What is divorce? And what is God's response to divorce? Point number one. What is marriage? According to God... Marriage is a covenant. You can see that in verse 14, where God says that your wife is your wife by covenant. Now, you'll remember that the kind of pocket-sized definition that we've given to the word covenant is, it's a relationship grounded in a promise. A relationship grounded in a promise. Consider our church covenant, for example, which Michael Wall prayed about this morning, and Russell Berger as well. No? Just Michael. There it is. A church covenant is something that you enter into when you agree to join as a member of this church. And when you do that, you are agreeing to love this church, to serve this church, to be served by this church. You're entering into a relationship with this church that's grounded in a promise with the other members of this church and with God that you will help us protect our doctrine and worship, that you will speak the truth to one another in love, that you will give support to the work of the ministry, You agree to show up on the days that we as Christians for 2,000 years have been worshiping our resurrected Savior. You agree to stick it out even when you feel like quitting and things get hard. This is a relationship that we have with God and one another that's grounded in a promise. And as good and necessary as a church covenant is, the marriage covenant is more significant still. It is unique. The marriage covenant is deeper and more significant than any other covenant between two human beings. You can see what makes the marriage covenant so special in verse 15. Look there again. It says, Did he, speaking of God, not make them, speaking of the two separate people, one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Well, you see, the thing that makes the marriage covenant so special is that when a man and a woman come together, They become one person by the creating act of God Himself. No other human covenant has that aspect to it. The Spirit of God takes two separate beings and makes them one. God is the one who forms the one out of the two. Now, we may not understand the mechanics behind all of this, how this works. We may not understand some of the mystery of it all. But it makes sense theologically. You see this pattern of creation all throughout your whole Bible. When God creates, He's always using His Spirit as the agent of creation. The Spirit is at work in the creation of the world in Genesis 3. The Spirit is at work in the recreation of our dead hearts in John chapter 3 when Jesus talks about regeneration, which literally just means to recreate. You see that the Spirit is at work as the agent of creation in the writing of Scripture. 
in the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Wherever something is being created or being recreated, the Spirit is the agent of creation in that moment. So, when a man and a woman come together in a marriage covenant, they are not entering into a two-way covenant. They're entering into a three-way covenant. It's a relationship grounded in a promise between a man and a woman and God. And this is the reason why, friends, we must, as a church, never let the world define for us what marriage is. There are any number of wrong ways that the world wants to define marriage. Between a man and a man, between a woman and a woman, between a man and his horse, between a woman and her two husbands, uh, just a mere social contract between two people that can be terminated along uh, mutually agreeable lines. All of these misdefinitions of marriage have the same underlying cause. At the root, they all exclude God from the marriage covenant. Because God is the ultimate agent of creation in marriage, in this marriage union, it is permanent. That is to say, it cannot be broken by anyone or anything other than God. That's why Jesus, in the verses that we read earlier from Matthew chapter 19 together, says this, what God has joined together, using the same language that we see in Genesis and here in Malachi, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Don't presume that you have the authority to undo the thing which God alone has done. One of the reasons why God is so opposed to divorce is because it's a manifestation of our pride. When we try to terminate something that we didn't create, we put ourselves in the place of God. We try to act with an authority that we don't possess. And we show that our hearts are devoid of faith. If our hearts had faith, we wouldn't try to be God. We would rather entrust ourselves to God, even in our marriages, even when we want to walk out on them. Point number two, what is the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? If you don't spend much time in church, you can probably see already that the way that we talk about marriage as Christians is very different than the way the world talks about marriage. For the Christian, marriage is not a flippant thing. It's not a light thing. It's a very weighty and heavy thing. And the reason why is because we have a God-centered theology of marriage. We think that Christian marriage is a God-centered endeavor. We say that God gave us marriage. God defines marriage. God is the agent of creation in marriage. But God also has a purpose for marriage. He has many purposes for marriages. But in today's text, we see one purpose for marriage in particular. You can see that at the end of verse 15. If you look there, it says, And what was the one God seeking? That is when he gave us marriage. Well, godly offspring. So there are several reasons why God gave us marriage. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Two people becoming one is a picture of the Trinitarian God of the Bible that we worship, etc. But one of the main reasons why God gave us marriage is for the purpose of procreation. 
If you remember from Genesis, the very first command that God gave to his people was to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to have kids. Part of God's good design and creation is to fill the earth with his glory through his little image bearers, little human beings walking around, reflecting his glory all over the earth. Now, before continuing, we need to qualify this teaching a little bit. Marriage is still beautiful and worthy in the eyes of God, even if you never have any children. Marriage without children is not part of God's original good design. It is a result of the fall, but it is still a worthy thing in the eyes of God to be faithfully married, to still picture the Trinitarian God of the Bible with your marriage, to still paint a picture of the gospel to a lost and dying world, even if you never have any children. Nevertheless, we have to recognize that one of the main reasons why God gave us the gift of marriage was so that we would produce godly offspring. After the fall of Genesis 3, our ability to produce godly offspring was, to put it lightly, greatly hindered. People who were godly, who were walking in the presence of God, who were holy, were separated from God, were corrupted, were tainted with sin, fallen. And so what they produced was just more fallenness. You see this. Adam creates Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and then Cain's descendants, things just get perpetually worse until finally the Lord sees that the thoughts and intentions of man's heart is only always an evil. destroys the world. Nevertheless, When God chose a people for himself, when he formed a covenant community and he revealed himself to them and he gave them his love and he taught them to be holy and he put his spirit in their midst, he gave God's people the ability to once again produce godly offspring. This is the reason why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you see the Lord commanding his newly formed people to spend so much time training their children up in godliness. As you walk by the way, as you get up in the morning, as you lay down at night, have it on the doorposts of your home. Spend all of your time, parents, teaching your children to be godly because that is the reason why you have children. I gave you those children to produce godly offspring. If divorce, excuse me, If this is true, divorce, as you can imagine, hinders this substantially. It gets in the way of producing godly offspring. Divorce, if it is true, as this text says, if it is an issue of faithlessness, parents, when they divorce for unlawful reasons, are teaching their children to walk in faithlessness. If divorce of Malachi's day was teaching children how to be godly. Excuse me, if this is true, then the divorces in Malachi's day were teaching the children how to be ungodly, how to be faithless rather than godly and faithful. Apparently, the Israelites of Malachi's day had come to adopt a view of marriage that was much more like the pagan cultures that surrounded them than the picture of marriage that God had given them in His Word. They had adopted a low view of marriage, a casual view of marriage, a man-centered view of marriage. And this low view of marriage, this man-centered view of marriage, it led to a high rate of divorce. 
You can see the same thing happening today. Which brings us to our third point. What is divorce? What is divorce? Before I begin to explain what divorce is, I need to give you a couple of qualifications. Two. Number one, you should know that the Bible does permit divorce in certain instances. The main instance being adultery. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. There are also other instances, I think, like abandonment, which Paul teaches. He teaches that a woman who's been abandoned by her husband is free to remarry, and it's not a sin. Furthermore, I think it can be implied, excuse me, inferred that uh, severe, div- div- excuse me, severe abuse is forced abandonment. Now, having said that, you should know that what Jesus teaches us about divorce is that it's permitted as a result of the fall, not that it's good even when it's lawful. So listen to Jesus in Matthew 19, which we read earlier. They said to him, why then, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So he said, the, the religious leaders are asking Jesus, well, you're speaking so negatively about divorce, but Moses, the prophet of God who received the law of God, he told us it was okay. And then Jesus answers them. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So, brothers and sisters, you can see that even though divorce is permitted in certain circumstances, because of the impact of sin in this fallen world, Jesus is clear to remind us that divorce is never good, even if it is sometimes permissible. Divorce is always the result of sin, either your sin or someone else's. Therefore, it's never a good thing. Now, one more thing to note before moving deeper into our third point. The vast majority of modern divorces have nothing to do with adultery, abandonment, or severe abuse. And that's certainly not what was taking place in the days of Malachi. So before I tell you uh, just how bad divorce is, just how much God hates divorce, just how careful we must be to avoid divorce, I want to encourage you not to play the yeah, but game. Because the majority of the people who get divorced are not getting divorced for good or acceptable reasons. They're just tired of fighting. They don't want to stay committed. They just give up. So, back to the question. What is divorce? You kind of have to give two answers here, biblically. First one is, is divorce is the termination of the marriage covenant. The relationship of the marriage. Unlawful divorce, sinful divorce, is the unlawful covenant breaking. It's the breaking the covenant where God has not told you it's acceptable to break the covenant. Now that's the sort of Merriam-Webster, Oxford, encyclopedia, dictionary, you know, uh, definition. But I think today's text actually gives us a more vivid, a more textured understanding of what unlawful divorce is. So I've got three subpoints for you here. I'm going to just say divorce, but keep in mind I'm referring to unlawful divorce. Divorce is faithlessness, divorce is hatred, and divorce is violence. Number 
one. Divorce is faithlessness. You see this in verse 14. Malachi says that the husbands of Israel have been faithless to the wives of their youth. Again in verse 15, Malachi says, protect your spirit. Why? Well, so that you're not faithless, so that you don't get a divorce and display faithlessness towards God and towards your wife. This is the language of covenant breaking, of faithlessness to the thing that you agreed to. Rather than doing what you agreed to, what you promised to do, you bail. Okay? These men of Malachi's day have not only been faithless towards God, but also towards their wives. It's significant that Malachi says that these men of Israel have been faithless to the wives of their youth. Listen to how one Puritan described the situation of being faithless to the wife of your youth. The woman whom you have wronged was the companion of those earlier and brighter days of your life when in the bloom of her young beauty she left her father's house and shared in your struggles and rejoiced in your later successes, who walked arm in arm with you along the pilgrimage of your life, cheering you in its trials by her gentle ministry. And now when the bloom of her youth has faded and the friends of her youth have gone, when the father and mother of her youth are in the grave, then you cruelly cast her off as a worn-out, worthless thing and insult her holiest affections. To the men of Sixth Avenue, pay very close attention. Women are not shiny little toys for you to pick up and play with as a form of entertainment for a few decades and then cast aside when you have become bored. Douglas Wilson, no, excuse me. When a woman marries, she leaves her father and mother and family and her whole support structure. She puts her whole life into your hands. She gives her husband the best portion of her life and even even when a woman is as far from perfect as she, as she can be, she gives all of herself to her husband. So men, we must not ever dare to use a woman up and to toss her aside. To do so is nothing short of hatred. Which leads us to our second subpoint: Divorce is hatred. You see this in verse 16. Malachi says that the man who treats his wife like this does not love his wife. Look at the first half of that verse. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel. Divorce equals he doesn't love her. He's actively working against her. You have to remember, friends, that love is not just something that we feel, but it's something that we do. And even then you have to remember that love is not just something that we do once. It's something that we take up and we do over and over and over. It becomes a pattern of our lives. Douglas Wilson, which I tried to quote earlier, but I'm going to quote now where it should be quoted, says that manhood is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And the biblical love of a husband 
is to gladly take up that sacrificial responsibility over and over and over again, day after day after day, until one or both of those spouses pass away. That's what biblical love is. To take a woman and to use her up and to cast her aside like a piece of trash is not love. It is hatred. And it's also violence. Our third subpoint: divorce is violence. We can look at verse 16 again. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he's not referring to God's garment. He's saying the Lord covers that man, the, the divorcer, his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Here, Malachi uses a pretty powerful illustration to communicate how terrible the way these men in the days of Malachi were treating the women. So place yourself in the shoes of a person uh, in ancient days. You're furious at another man. You want to go kill him. You don't have a gun. You can't shoot him from far away. You got a sword or a dagger. So you run up on the man in a fit of anger and rage and you slash away with your sword or you stab him with your dagger. What do you think would happen to your garments? Well, they would be splattered with the blood of your victim. And Malachi says that this is what happens to a man who divorces his wife for unlawful reasons. He covers himself with the evidence of his crime. He makes it plain, the Lord makes it plain to everyone, the violence that he has committed. He cannot hide the evidence. Unlawful divorce is violence. Which brings us to the fourth point of the sermon, God's response to such violence. In light of everything that we've said, it should not surprise you to know that God's response to such faithlessness, such hatred, such violence, is incredibly negative. He hates it. He despises it. He, He hates it so much that it says that he will not accept the worship of someone who has committed these deeds. Look back at verse 13, the very first verse uh, of the part two of today's sermon. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Well, apparently these men were discarding their wives like used up goods and then going to the altar of the Lord and trying to offer up worship as if nothing was happening, as if they hadn't been sinning in such a terrible way. The text says that they're heaping up tears, they're crying, they're groaning, they're moaning, they're doing all these external things to try to manipulate God into receiving their worthless worship. But God is clear to tell them that He will not receive it. God is clear to tell His people all throughout the Bible that He does not accept the worship of hypocrites. He accepts the worship of the broken, the downtrodden, the poor in spirit, sinners like you and me who are broken and who see our great need of a Savior. But the worship of the hypocrite is worthless to him. And that's what these men were doing. They were being hypocrites. They were spurning their marriage covenants. They were demeaning the daughters of God. They were destroying families. They were teaching their children faithlessness. They were corrupting the continued community of faith. And then they were taking their offerings to the Lord like everything was normal. 
They were crying at the altar, God, I don't understand. Why aren't you blessing me? And God won't have any of it. You see this same principle played out in the New Testament. Peter tells uh, husbands that they have to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers will be heard. What he says is, you can't abuse your wives or take advantage of your wives or lord your authority over your wives and then come and pray to me as if you're not living like this. You can see here from the way that Peter applies the same teaching in the New Testament that it's not really about divorce. Divorce is probably the deepest expression of the same sin that can take place in just the general poor treatment of your spouse. Husbands, if you're treating your wives like a pile of garbage and then praying to God, you should have no confidence that he's listening to what you have to say unless what you have to say is, Lord, I repent in the dust. Help me to be a better husband. In verse 14, we see that the Lord is not blind to such hypocrisy. It says that He is a witness against these men. They can cry and beg and groan as much as they please. They can think that they can hide it. They can try to cover it up. They can get people on their side, but the Lord sees and He knows. And He will not regard their tears while they disregard the tears of their wives. The Lord treats contemptuously the person who treats the marriage covenant with contempt. He does not accept the worship from unrepentant covenant breakers. Which brings us to the application. We're going to start with some very narrow application, but then we'll expand to areas that I think will be helpful even for single people. If you don't tune me out. The first point of application is that we have to guard against divorce. We saw this last week in verse 15 and in verse 16. The Lord tells His people that they have to guard their spirits. They have to guard, they have to protect themselves from getting to a place where their spirit, their heart would kind of give them permission to do the sorts of things that they know is not okay to do. Things that are not okay to do. Look at the second half of verse 15 and verse 16. It says, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then at the end of verse 16, he says again, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Well, how can we guard our spirits? How can we protect our hearts? Well, I'm going to give you some of the things I said last week, but I'm going to give you some more this week. Number one, you have to, you have to look at Jesus. We've said a hundred times in this church that if you want to look at God, if you want to know who God is, if you want to see God most clearly, you have to look at His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you look at Jesus Christ, you look at Him in His Word. And His Word tells us things about Jesus, particularly in a marriage context. Paul, speaking to the newly converted Christians at Corinth, says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So here Paul is picturing Jesus in the church as a husband and a wife in an eternal marriage. And he says that he loved the church. Well, how did he love her? He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her. That is, caring for her by the washing with water through the word. Well, to what end? So that he would present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus is the husband 
who gives all of himself to see his wife become the best of herself. Look at Jesus. Number two, invest in your relationship with the church. Invest in your relationship with the church. Brothers and sisters, you cannot do this thing alone. You can't just be a normal, faithful Christian without the church. First of all, God has commanded you to be a member of a church. It's just part of normal obedience. But apart from that, if you think that you can survive life in this fallen world without your brothers and sisters in arms here to help you and take you, help you get to heaven, you're just sadly mistaken. And if you do make it, you're going to make it there by the skin of your teeth. You're going to suffer greatly on the way. But how much more do you need your church family to, to do something in these days that feels so impossible, like not getting a divorce, staying committed, staying faithful? You know, studies that don't even have anything to do with the Bible have shown that people who have uh, a lot of relationships with people who will encourage them to not get divorced during times of marital strife, get this, you ready? They tend to not get divorced as much. So just having any kind of community helps you prevent divorce. How much more should this be true for us, us as brothers and sisters in Christ who have a high view of marriage and a strong commitment to love one another? Being a member of a church means that you don't have to fight for your marriage alone. Brothers and sisters will walk with you through the dark and the hard times. They'll take the late night phone calls. They'll babysit so you can go to a counselor. They'll speak the truth to you in love. They'll encourage you when you feel hopeless. They'll challenge you to confess sin. They'll arbitrate difficult conversations. They'll read books with you so that you don't have to wrestle with it alone. They'll remind you of the truth of God's word. They'll point out evidences of grace. They'll counsel you when you need an outside perspective. They'll give you a safe place to talk about issues in your marriage that you feel like you could never bring up in a small group setting. They'll pray for you when you feel like you just don't know what else to do anymore. And you don't know if you believe that God can save your marriage. A church is a community of people who can and should and are called to by God give all of themselves for you and your marriage. Invest in your marriage, number three. Invest in your marriage. This is part of guarding your spirit. Silver anniversaries don't happen by accident. You have to work hard to make sure that you stay married that long. I had a brother that I talked to the other day. He's, he's got to be 190 years old. And he told me that he was married to his wife for 78 years. 78 years. And my response to him was my response to anybody who says they've been married longer than me. That's a lot of grace, brother. That's a lot of grace. You have to invest, though. You have, just like all of God's grace, God moves and you have to move in His moving. You have to cut out distractions. You have to make time. You have to go on date nights. You have to talk. You have to seek counsel. You have to confess and repent. You have to remind yourselves regularly about the seriousness of your marriage covenant. You have to forgive quickly. You can't keep any record of wrongs. You have to be patient. You have to pray with and for each other. You have to remember the good times during the bad times. You have to remind each other of evidences of grace. You have to communicate the gospel to one another. You have to practice submission and respect and sacrificial love. You have to make a covenant with your eyes. You have to prepare for the bad times during the good times. 
you have to remind each other of God's good promises for the future. And you have to suffer well together. Most importantly, you have to tell yourself that from the day that you get married until the day that one or both of you die, that divorce is not an option. From the day that you get married, you have to tell each other that until one or both of you dies, divorce is not an option. Husbands have to be willing to die to fight for their marriages. And wives do too. Number five, invest in a God-centered view of marriage. The world is trying to flood your heart and mind with unbiblical views of marriage. We've talked about that already. The media that we consume consume has essentially normalized divorce. You see this in other areas. 20 years ago, there was not a gay couple on television. Now, a television show cannot be successful without it. This is part of the process of normalization. The same thing has happened with abortion. Abortion, a thing that was at one point in time unspeakable because of the evil of killing an infant, is now something that has become a normal part of care for a woman when she goes and tells the doctor that she's pregnant give you the option for divorce. In the same way that divorce was normalized through our media 50 years ago, we now feel almost nothing when we hear that word. It doesn't cause us to twinge. It doesn't cause us to jerk. It's just a normal part of our experience in this fallen world. So be wise and discerning in the media that you consume or anything that you consume. You may not realize just how much pollution Regarding divorce, your heart filter has picked up until the day when things get so hard in your marriage that you want to quit. And then all of a sudden, something that should seem audacious to you, something that should seem impossible, something that should seem like like it's not even an option, it just kind of seems normal. You have to be on guard. To combat the world's indoctrination, you must be constantly reminded that marriage is a God-centered endeavor. It comes through God, through, excuse me, it comes from God. It's meant to glorify God. It's meant to point a lost and dying world to God and His gospel. And ultimately, friends, our marriages, all of them, every single one of them, will one day be dissolved in eternity, where we as Christians will enter into our ultimate final union with our great and perfect husband, Jesus Christ. As has been said elsewhere in Scripture, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him, even our marriages. Okay. Single people have been like, yeah, 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 yeah. Here's your point of application. I actually have two points of application for you. Two ways that this this text actually matters for your life, even though you're not married. Number one, you you have to pay attention during sermons like this and maybe Sunday school classes like this or a Wednesday night study like this, because wisdom means preparing today for what will probably come tomorrow. Right? You may not be married today, but you may very well be married next week or next year. Don't be a slugger. Don't be lazy. Don't tune out things that don't necessarily apply to you. You can learn today for what may happen tomorrow. Store up this wisdom from God's Word for the day that you may get married. But there's more. You see, Jesus takes the same basic principle from today's text, and He applies it more broadly in His teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus says that 
If you have any kind of relational difficulty, if a brother or sister's got something against you, you got something against them, don't go to the altar. Go fix that relationship and then go to the altar. This is what he says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Single people, you just need to make sure that you have overall good relationships, especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to make sure that even though you don't have a wife or a husband to invest in right now, that you're investing in the relationships that God has given you. If you're a covenant member of this church, God has given you someone to love. He's given you a ministry to human beings that you should be faithful to. And just like a marriage covenant, but to a lesser degree, it's hard to maintain strong relationships in the church. We're so easily destroyed by gossip, slander, backbiting, and a whole bunch of other things from politics to whatever. You need to be intentional about building up strong relationships in the life of this church. Now, I recognize that a large part of this sermon has been directed towards men. Okay? Part of the reason for that, I think, is warranted from the text. What was happening in Malachi's day was that the men were using up the women and then abandoning them and getting divorced and then probably going and marrying a pagan woman. But I also realize that we live in a different time. We live in a different culture where, where it's just as easy for a woman to do to a man the sorts of things that were taking place in Malachi's day. It's very easy for a woman to marry a man and to take him for everything he's got. From the best days of his youth to his entire savings account to half of his retirement account. It's just as easy for women to do that same sort of thing. And so I want you to know that today's text, ladies, applies to you as well as to men. But I think that there is still a major responsibility that lies heavily on the shoulders of men to fight for their marriages and to fight against divorce. I think you get this from the fact that God created men to be the leaders of their home. Now, despite what you may have heard, being a leader doesn't necessarily confer greater privilege, but it always confers greater responsibility. Adam and Eve both sinned in the garden. Who ate the fruit first? Eve. Nevertheless, who did God come to when it was time for a reckoning? He didn't go and ask Eve what was going on. He went to Adam as the head of the household because he bore that responsibility. So men and women, you both bear a responsibility to fight for your marriage. But men, you bear an exceptionally heavy responsibility. I know that some of us sitting here this morning have been through divorce. And some of these words might bring up bad memories, past sins, yours or your spouse's. If you're a Christian, you have to remember that Jesus died for all of your sins. Not all of your sins with an asterisk. If you go down and read the fine print, it says divorce. Accept divorce. Some sins can't be undone. And some sins have effects that just last the rest of our lives. But if you are in Christ, if you have repented and turned away from your sin, and if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation, you are forgiven. Satan cannot hold that against you, and you shouldn't hold it against yourself because God doesn't hold it against you. You are forgiven. In conclusion, 
you remember that we've been talking about the Israelites and how they're supposed to be a light to the nations. God's holy and chosen people supposed to be like a lamp drawing all the moths of the nations, all these pagan moths around to see God and His holiness. But in the days of Malachi, as basically the rest of the story of the Israelites, the people were failing. They were failing in their call to be holy. The people of God should have had the most thriving marriages in the land. Nevertheless, it seemed like their marriages were not any better off than their pagan neighbors. And this is why we need Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus is the perfect husband. Rather than using women for his own selfish purposes, Jesus humbled himself and gave all of himself for his bride. Rather than doing violence against women, Jesus came and suffered violence for the sake of his bride. Rather than being faithless to women, Jesus came and remained faithful even to a wife, even unto the point of death, who was faithless to him and who has given him every good reason to break the marriage covenant, but he hasn't. Rather than hating women, Jesus came and loved his wife with the greatest love in the world. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. But when God gave us the gospel, that is when Jesus Christ came down and died on the cross to save us from our sins, he gave us a picture of a perfect marriage. And he taught us what we need to strive towards. He gave us a vision of something to pursue. Jesus Christ is the perfect husband. He loves and cares for his wife even to the point of death. And for Jesus, divorce is never an option. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you should know that Jesus invites you into a covenant relationship with him. He promises that he will love you well. He will care for you in the good times and the bad, in sickness and in health, in rich and in poor, when you're young and fit and when you're old and drooping. He'll never give up on you. Jesus will never treat you like this world has treated you. Jesus will never take advantage of you. Jesus won't chew you up and spit you out. Quite the opposite. He's already given his life for you. Even when you were his enemy, even when you didn't love him and you loved the world and you loved your sin and you loved everyone and everything in this world except for Jesus, he loved you and gave himself for you. And now his strong but gentle voice is calling. He's not just calling to you either. He's calling to the whole world, to all tribes and tongues and nations. The good and perfect husband is calling us all to himself. And he promises that if we turn away from our love for the world and turn to him in faith, that we will be with him forever in the perfect marriage. In light of this, Samantha is going to be baptized this morning. Samantha, come on up, sister. Samantha, by being baptized, is having a public profession of her private faith, that is, her desire to turn from the love of the world and to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, guys, it's so easy for everybody to come up here and talk to a room full of people. You know, nobody gets embarrassed. Nobody gets nervous or anything like that. Right? Okay, come on up. Samantha's going to share her testimony. Go ahead, sister. I was sleeping 
Oh, sorry. A little louder, a little louder for the people. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, microphone. Do we have that? Yeah. There you go, sister. Thank you. I always believed in God, but I wasn't sure what I believed in, and I lived like God wasn't real. During my first semester at Calhoun, I took a world religion class, and Christianity made sense to me. I wanted to start going to church, but I didn't know where. The first day of the next semester, I was invited to this church. During my, first, during my visit, I felt the weight of my sin at Wednesday night Bible study for the first time, and I started to trust in Jesus. Since then, I've put more time into studying the Bible, and I'm actively trying to turn away from sin. I still have a lot of work to do, and my life isn't perfect, but I believe that God saved me, and it's, com it's comforting to know that Christ forgives all my sin. And I'm really thankful that I get to be a member in this church, and I look forward to spiritually growing here. Thank you, Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for bringing Samantha to us. And we pray that uh, this first step of obedience would not be the last step. Father, we pray that your spirit would guide Samantha and encourage her and empower her uh, to live faithfully for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we pray all of this in the matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll sing a song while we're going to get ready to get dunked. Come on, sister. Please stand with me as we sing Jesus.